You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. Hello everyone, welcome to episode 236 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? How am I? Apparently we're getting t-shirts made with How Are You, Al? Oh on yeah, the front that's right. <laughs> our swag. When are, we doing, when are we doing the So You Want to Be a Writer swag? swag. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm so merch. ready. <laughs> I'm sorry. So ready. Um, do you know what I am this week? I I'm distracted. Is what, what is I that? am this week. Well, I think, and I know that some of our readers will relate to this, and I know that that you will all be shouting at me, going, "Al, listen to your own advice." Um, but I think I am suffering a little tiny bit from shiny new thing syndrome. Oh, yes, bright, shiny object syndrome. That's the one, yes. What, what is the bright, shiny object? Uh, well, I look, I was doing, I was working away at a manuscript that I've been working on for a little while and it was sort of all going along swimmingly and and then I got distracted by this little voice that appeared in my head um, and she uh, <laughs> got very loud <laughs> as they do. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll sit down and I'll do the right thing and I'll tell, you know, write down all the things that she's telling me so that I can then dispense with her briefly and put her in a filing cabinet and come back to her when I'm ready. Um, and so I sat down to do that. And then as I was doing that, I suddenly realized that I was not just writing down character notes and plot points. I was actually (laughs) writing a manuscript. So yes, She's very loud. I have to tell you, she's very, very loud. Um, So I am a little distracted by her. I've decided that I am going to allow myself to be distracted by her for today um, because she's been a bit loud for a little while now. This is like I think I'm into about week two of her shouting at me. Um, And the manuscript is actually developing quite nicely. So I've decided that I'm just – Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Let it flow. Well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, what I'm doing is I'm actually taking the sensible approach to this. I'm trying to capture her voice because her voice is really, really important for this particular, what this thing is looking like. So I'm just trying to get a real handle on her voice and I have done a little outline, key plot points, who she is, all of that sort of stuff. And I have started to just trying to capture her voice, um, and as I'm doing that, I'm, you know, new characters are popping up and a whole range of things is happening because that's how I write. But I also mm. know that the way that I write, I'm going to run out of steam any minute now because, you know, it's, oh. it's that initial burst. So I'm just going to ride that initial burst and I've given myself kind of a day or two to just get that all underway. 
Um, mm. And then I'm going back to what I was working on because I think what I was working on um, has, you know, equal merit um, or non-merit depending on your perspective. Um, so I'm going to go back to that and, and finish that because I am actually, you know, 20,000 words into that. So that's yes. really, you know, that's a solid thing to be going on with and she's just going to have to be quiet for a little while once I've got her voice together. (laughs) What if she starts screaming and shouting? Uh, Look, you know, depending on what she's screaming and shouting, um, if it's something that I suddenly think, uh, you know, when Procrasti Pup and I are out walking and I suddenly go, aha, if it's an aha moment, then Mm. I will add that aha moment to the file. Um, But I am not going to try to actually like finish that manuscript because otherwise the other thing which I'm also working on is going to end up you know sidelined again and um, I think that the other thing is actually something that uh, has wide-reaching appeal and that's kind of what I want to want to focus on for the time being I just need to get her to be quiet for a little while so yeah, once I good luck that, yeah so you can see how distracting it gets though like when you've got voices in your head and you sound like a total lunatic um yeah, right. but yeah so that's that's what's going on at the moment I'm a little distracted but that's okay that's a step up from fair to middling right yes that's great it is I'm impressed Okay, right. distraction is good. So yes. I haven't been extract, uh, distracted. Instead, I have been dealing with ghosts from the past. Oh. So Oops. I, yeah, ghosts from the past. So I got an email this morning from a major publication um, saying, oh, hey, we just need, um, you know, your photo or something to put you on the contributors page um, uh, where this article is going out in the next issue or the next next issue or something. Now, I wrote that article maybe uh, October 2016. Get out. (laughs) Do you even remember writing it? Well, I remember writing it but (laughs) – and, well, I remember writing it. I don't even – you know, but at this point – I wouldn't have been able to tell you who was in it or anything. I had to go Gosh. up. So sometimes you can wait a long time in freelance world, can't you? <laughs> that's outrageous. Does it need updating? Like that's well, a that was, long time. That was my main concern. Um, yeah. I was freaking out as to whether the people were still in the same positions or whether the company still existed and uh, the publication has assured me that they have checked. Um, so imagine those, imagine those people you interviewed for that story, just going, what? I I have no recollection of this interview. (laughs) I know. I know. Well, they had to contact them actually to get the photos, to get photos. So they are aware, I, I, I believe, um, but, yeah, you can wait a long time. You think things move slow in book publishing world? <laughs> That's not the only place they move slow. <laughs> that is hilarious. Oh, well, there you are. That is a ghost from the past, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, we want to give a big shout-out to This Phoenix, who has left us a review on iTunes all the way from the UK. (gasps) Now, This Phoenix, which is their username, has said, I'm so pleased I stumbled upon this podcast. I could listen to Val and Al all day. They are so chatty, honest and friendly, and I love the Aussie accent. So win-win. Full of information, this podcast is interesting and motivating, including interviews, current topics, and let's not forget the word of the week. (laughs) 
they just say that, you know, they're just being polite. I have listened to various podcasts and this is the only one I look and wait for religiously. Thanks so much for the entertainment, information and amazing welcoming Facebook group. How cool is that? That's that lovely. is so cool. I love the fact yes. that we have um, listeners all over the world. It's very, very exciting. Yes, very exciting. So big hello to this Phoenix. Thank you so much. You've made our day. And if any other listeners have 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, that would be so awesome and we'd be very grateful because it certainly helps us in the rankings. It does. Now, Apart from, you know, listeners in the UK, you are doing some travelling, not quite as far as the UK though. Oh, that's right. Well, a little bit later this year, I, Brisbane, brace yourselves. I'm coming (laughs) your way. Prepare. I know. I'm very excited because I'm part of the Brisbane Writers' Festival Wordplay program this year and I'll be heading up to Brisbane for a couple of days in early September. I think it's the 4th to the 6th of September. I'm going to be running my Find Your Writing Superpower workshop um, for for kids and um, I'm really looking forward to it. I I, I love going to writers' festivals. I love hanging out with other authors um, and, you know, meeting kids and just – you know, just being part of it because when you work as I do, you know, in the regions, as they say, um, you know, on your own a lot, you you can mm-hmm. feel a little bit isolated sometimes. So these are a great opportunity for me to just remember that, you know, I'm part of a larger world. Of course, you know, I talk to you every week, which reminds me that there are mm-hmm. there's more out there than just me. Um, but yeah, I've got a few this the, I've got a few in the second half of, of this year because I've got the um, the Kids in YA Day at the New South Wales Writers Centre on the 30th of June. I've got this Brisbane Writers Festival. I've got the Shoalhaven Readers and Writers Festival on the 4th of so August. Many. And I'm also going to the Burdekin Readers and Writers Festival in October, which is up in North Queensland. Wow. So yeah, it's uh, I'm it's I'm sort of cramming all of it into the second half of the year this year, which is quite exciting. Um, and I'm very very much looking forward to it. I I like to get out there amongst it. It's fun. Yeah, Where, have you been to Burdekin before? Well. Yes, I have. It's based in Ayr, which is up in North Queensland, which is about an hour south of Townsville. And my dad grew up there. Really? He did. Yes. So we used to go there like every second Christmas holidays in the Holden Kingswood station wagon, (laughs) driving, driving. So we drove initially from the Northern Territory to Ayr. And then wow. once we moved down to the south coast, we drove from the south coast of New South Wales to Air, which used to take us about Ooh. four days in the Holden Kingswood station wagon. Yeah. All of us in the back, sweating, you know, sticking to the vinyl seats, the whole mm. the, the whole thing. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'm actually quite familiar with it. I have family up there that I'm really looking forward to seeing, and Lovely. I'm very much. Yeah, well, I'm hoping to go to um, to the Air Public School, the state school there, because uh, oh. you know my dad was, I'm pretty sure, school captain maybe or something. Anyway, he went there, and you know, I got there's there's roots to be had. I'm excited. Fantastic. Are you going to drive on vinyl seats? To I am Air? not. <laughs> I am not. I have no like you know like it's nice in memory and you look back on it, but at the time, oh, and we used to sing all the way because you know there was no yes. sort of iPods or anything. So to entertain mm. ourselves, me and my sisters, and then eventually my little brother when he came along, we would all we'd be singing. So you know I hear John Denver Country Roads, and oh, it just immediately yes. puts me in the back of 
the Kingswood station wagon. We had orange curtains in the windows so oh. that we could, you know, like block out the sun if we wanted to. Oh. Um, yeah, yeah. I oh, like it. We, we, it was, look, honestly, they were epic journeys, epic. <laughs> <laughs> All right, maybe it's something you can retrace your steps one day and find an old Kingswood and, and do it again. Mm, okay, just for you. You want to come? No, it's okay. So I let's can sing move on. all the way for you. You'll love it. Oh, My dad I like loved singing. It. I like singing. Um, okay, so let's move on to there's just a Kurt Vonnegut quote that I, um, you know, I've, I've read it many times before, but I just wanted to bring it up because I think it's a good one. Because sometimes I feel that people just love the idea of writing and they, because they love reading, you know, and, and they want to be able to do a similar thing, but then they kind of get stuck. They, 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 they want to put pen to paper or fingers to the keyboard and they're not really sure, or they meander, you know, it doesn't really have a direction. So this quote is, um, from Kurt Vonnegut is, when I used to teach creative writing, I would tell the students to make their characters want something right away, even if it's only a glass of water. Characters paralyzed by the meaninglessness of modern life still have to drink water <laughs> from time to time. And I think that's such an important one because I do read um, quite a number of stories that meander that don't really you're not really sure why you're reading it because you don't know what the character wants so sooner rather than later it's very important to make sure that your reader is very clear on what your character wants and your character doesn't need to want world peace or to save the world from certain destruction in your first scene or in a particular scene but they do need to be moving in a particular direction. So do you think that that's good advice for people who are kind of wondering, maybe looking for an entry point on where to start? I, I do. I think it's a great a, a great piece of advice. And I also think that um, so when I do workshops for kids, uh, my advice to them is always to start on the day that's different. Like don't give me mm. the, t the character's entire backstory and what life's normally like for them yes. and then get to the point of the story. You've got to start where things change and, um, and then, you know, follow that change and follow. And, you know, the character has to want something and at the, at basically to keep things interesting, probably ideally getting that glass of water is very difficult for them because the more problems mm. that you throw in there, the more interest you have in the story, the more directions your story can take and the more plot points you have. So, um, yeah, start on the day that's different and your character has to want something. Pretty straightforward. Yes, very straightforward, but very, very powerful. All right, let's move on to another thing I thought we would chat about, and that is because we haven't really chatted about this. Uh, we've mentioned it a lot, but not really uh, done a deep dive into show, don't tell. Now, if there are listeners who are not familiar with the concept of show, don't tell, um, it's the fact that you need to show that something is happening, not tell the reader, um, like banging them over the head that something is happening. So a very simplistic example is when you're telling someone something, you might say he was angry. Mm. That's just telling the reader, he, your character, let's call him Bob, Bob was angry. But when you're showing Bob is angry, you are describing the situation so that the so that the reader surmises or understands or can see because you've shown them that Bob is angry. So instead you might say something like Bob stomped around his office 
huffing and puffing uh, um, as he swore under his breath about what John did last, you know, yesterday (laughs) or something like that. Uh, That's (laughs) really. Yep. I'm right there for this. Absolutely. But no, very good. (laughs) Very, very good. But you get the point. I do. The visual of what, describing what um, Bob is doing, you're not saying Bob is angry or you're not saying she is skinny. You're saying you could see her ribs protruding from her, you know, chest or something like that Mm. as if she hadn't eaten for months. Um, So show, don't tell is a a very, very important concept in writing fiction Um, and often, do you think, Al, one that seems to be causing a lot of problems or a lot of confusion. Are you finding that? Uh, I don't think it necessarily – I think it's one of those things that when you – because I remember the feedback I got on the first uh, manuscript that I wrote, um, women's fiction manuscript that I wrote, um, was basically that the voice was really good, there was a lot of great stuff happening, but there was a lot of telling in the story. And what happens with telling often – is where the author is not allowing room for the reader in the story to draw their own conclusions. Like they're yeah. so worried, they're so worried that the reader isn't going to get what they're going on about that they feel the need to bang the reader over the head with it. And um, a lot of telling actually comes from that. Um, I think it's a, it's it's a it tends to be something that you see. I mean, not all telling is bad. Like there are places mm. where a bit of tell is a good thing because it just moves your story forward more quickly um it's not the work of the devil telling uh, there is there well there is a school of thought out there that seems to be that you must show every single thing but that's not necessarily the case there is room for telling in a story but what you don't want to do is tell the story in its entirety um without allowing room to show the reader what's happening and allow the reader into the story to surmise you have to give your reader some agency and you have to allow them to have some kind of intelligence like there is a certain element of if I if I don't if I don't make this incredibly clear Bob was nervous Mm. Bob was angry then the reader's not going to get it and that's not that's not sort of allowing um allowing your reader to to the room to to be in the story with you and I think that's really Mm. important as well um it's one of those things that's not um it, it takes a bit of practice and it's the kind of thing that you will often pick up more in editing um, than yeah. necessarily when you're writing the story. You know, I don't think it's something that you should stress yourself about when you're writing your first draft because it is the kind of thing you can get tangled up in knots about. So don't stress about it when you're doing that. Write your story, tell the bits you need to tell, do whatever it is that you need to do. Um, but when you go back and edit, it is something to look for. It is something to mm. watch out for. Um, if you've got like there's a – we have a, a link on the Writer's Centre website, which is basically yeah. why you need to show, don't tell, and it's a very simple overview view of this concept and we'll put the link in the show notes. Um, So the example that's given there is, you know, telling would be Mrs. Parker was nosy. She gossiped about her neighbours. Okay, so we're going to bang the reader over the head with that. Um, But you could also show it, you know, by turning the blinds ever so slightly, Mrs. Parker could just peek through the window and see the Ford Explorer parked in the driveway. We get a very clear picture of the kind Mm -hmm. of person that Mrs. Parker might be. Now, the, yeah. the best way to show that she is someone who does, you know, it, it's a matter of 
showing that she does this a lot, like that this is her habitual place to be, not that she's stressed and worried, you know, that she's actually like really just very, very curious. She squinted to get a better view of the tall, muscular man getting out of the vehicle and walking up to Mrs. Jones's front door. So now we know she's not stressed about the Mm. fact that someone might be coming to get her. She's just peering on the neighbours. So, we, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit like too is if, you know, you've got someone who's very nervous, don't say Bob was nervous. You know, show Bob wiping his clammy pants, you know, clammy hands down his pants. Show the fact that his mouth is dry. You know, these are the kinds of emotional indicators that show a reader that Bob is uncomfortable. Whatever Bob is about to do, he's not happy doing it. So it, these are the sorts of things you want to think about. It. And it comes back to also using – you know, all of your senses to, when you're writing a story, you want to be able to bring in all of the senses. So telling is often just a very visual thing. You know, it's, it's, it's like, you, it's like you're sort of outlining a story. Whereas if you think about what a character feels like, what a character might smell, what a setting mm. might smell like, what it might feel like, whether there's sweat rolling down a person, think about all of those things, which help to show a scene because you're bringing in, you know, all of the colors, all of the senses, and that's that's where you kind of want to go to to, to create a full-bodied experience for your reader. Yeah, definitely. And have a look at the links that we'll put in the show notes to these explanations about show don't tell. And of course, you can find the show notes at so you want to be a writer.com.au. Have a look at those links because um, they articulate them and provide a bit, much better examples than the example I tried with Bob huffing and puffing around the office. Who could have just been <laughs> exercising for all we know. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we'll put the link in the show notes, but check it out if you are at all um, confused or unclear about Show Don't Tell because they are really good explanations. All right, now let's move on to our competition this week. We have a three-book pack of awesome books from Aussie female authors. Love that. The Upside of Over by J.D. Barrett tells the chaotic story of what happens when one of the country's most popular identities goes from reading the news to being the news. And The Escape Room by Megan Golden is a thriller that sees four Wall Street rivals trapped in an elevator escape room. The ultimate puzzle becomes a question of life and death. And Blue Bottle by Belinda Castles is a gripping tale set around Sydney's Bill Gola Beach. It follows the Bright family across the years as they struggle with their inescapable past and memories of that house on the cliff. Which of these three book titles sums up your life best and why? Our favourite answer will win all three books. Just go to writerscentre.com.au slash win. Now the uh, giveaway competition closes the 11th of June, so make sure you get your entries in at writercentre.com.au slash win. Now, Al, are you ready for the word of the week? I could not be more ready, Val. Excellent, because the word of the week is erubescent. That's Mm. E-R-U-B-E-S-C-E-N-T, erubescent. Good word, huh? Yep. Yes. What does it mean, Val? <laughs> okay. Some, 
Some words make people blush. Like if you went to Book of Mormon, you would blush a lot. Um, But this one actually means to blush. According to the Macquarie Dictionary, this adjective, because the, the noun is erubescence, simply means red or reddish or blushing and comes from the Latin rubera, to be red, just like a ruby. So you might say that Maxine was positively erubescent at the mention of her secret crush's name. Erubescent. Cool. I like it. You like it? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not quite sure how I feel about it. What, 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 it reminds me of pubescent. It's just it is the a essent bit. aspect. So yes. what, why, what does the essent add to it? Do you know? Um, it's all your Latin. on the nature of. Probably like takes on the nature of. Yeah. Red takes on the nature of. Puberty takes on the nature of, I don't know, I'm just a thing. Okay, mate, can you look that one up for us, please? Okay, I'll check that out and I shall report back because I love words. Excellent. All right, let's move on to our writer in residence this week. It is Carly Napier and she has an awesome book, The Secrets at Ocean's Edge. Ah, which I've read. Yes, it's cool, isn't it? It is a very, very good book. And it's a it's a really interesting book because there's this very much this underlying sense of foreboding about the whole mm-hmm. thing always, all the way through. And it's all about secrets. And um, the interesting thing about it, I thought, was that it's actually inspired by Carly's own family history. Yes, which I, right. You know, is an interesting – I mean, as far as, you know, writing your family history, this has definitely got – more to it than, yeah. <laughs> than a lot do. I don't know that yeah. my family history would be this interesting. Um, but, yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm very, uh, very interested to hear what Carly has to say about it. All right, let's have a chat to Carly Napier. Carly, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Valerie, for having me. Now, in case there are some people who have yet to come across your book, this awesome book, The Secrets at Ocean's Edge, for those readers who haven't got there yet or haven't read it yet, can you tell us what it's about? Okay. Well, The Secrets at Ocean's Edge is uh, set in 1932 in Western Australia, and it starts with the Haas family, Ernie and Lily, and their daughter, Gurley, abandoning their wheat farm to start a new life on the coast in a town called Dongra, where they hope to build a guest house and uh, establish themselves in the town. Unfortunately, things don't go as they hope. And um, Lily's brother, Tommy, who is suffering from shell shock from the First World War, has been wandering the track for several years looking for her. And he wanders into town and starts to pick at the threads that uh, bind their family together. Now, I understand this was inspired by your own family history. So, do tell. Well, inspired is a rather loose term. Um, It was actually inspired uh, by the Great Emu War, which was this fantastic historical event that I um, discovered one day when I was just looking through my feed and um, it popped up on screen. It was uh, uh, something that happened in 1932 in a town called Campion in WA, a wheat town, where the Australian artillery was called in to cull the emus that were menacing the um, the farmers' wheat crops. Now, over several campaigns, uh, the uh, uh, army, um, sorry, um, the Australian artillery fought several campaigns against the emus, but the emus actually um, 
won and the army had to withdraw. Now, when I read this, I thought it was such a wonderful event, raising so many issues of uh, men who, you know, no longer have a, a war to fight and, you know, what do they do um, when they don't have any more wars to fight? And so I kind of wanted to write a story then set in 1932 because it had all the other sort of themes and issues of hardships that people experienced in rural areas um, during the Great Depression. And so I had my setting of 1932. Mm. I had WA and IAMA West Australians, so I definitely was um, into setting my story there because I love the landscape. Mm. And I just needed to people it with um, characters. And I didn't really know um, what the story would be or the, um, the form it would take, but I did remember that I'd done some family history research oh, quite a long time ago where I discovered that on one branch of my family tree, I had um, someone who had been a bankrupt. He'd been in a wheat area and he had moved to Dongra to start up a new business uh, following a fire on his property in Perendry. And so I used that then as the spark to kind of um, launch the story. Awesome. So this is your debut novel and I have no doubt that it's going to be the first of many. Can you just give listeners a bit of an idea of what you were doing before you decided, oh, I'm going to write a novel? <laughs> it was a bit like that. Um, mm -hmm. I, I have worked as a social scientist and anthropologist for uh, a quite a few years. I always wanted to be a writer though as a child. I was always writing poetry and plays and I even enrolled in first year creative writing when I started at university when I was 16. Um, but I had a lack of life experience <coughs> and so I dropped out at the end of first year because I had nothing to write about um, and I yes and my life took a different direction altogether but I was always writing because as an anthropologist I was writing a lot of case studies and reports of um, different ways that people live their lives and make sense of their their worlds and so um I guess I was writing a lot of narrative in, in nonfiction narrative in that way. And people were, you know, people would say that I had a technical ability to write. So I, I, um, I didn't have any confidence issues there, but in terms of fiction, because I hadn't written it for many decades, I never thought I would be able to write a book until I was actually working uh, for the Queensland government as a, an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander family history researcher. And I was writing stories of people's family histories, piecing together fragments um, from the archives. Um, and sort of forming complete narratives out of them. And I was writing, um, I was uncovering and writing these family sagas, which were full of mysteries, full of secrets and horrendous events. And I started voicing aloud this idea that perhaps I should write a book, but I, I didn't want to write a book about those stories because they were definitely not my stories to tell. But it kind of this idea gained momentum. And I was soon made redundant from that job in 2013, mm. and which gave me some time to reflect on the sort of story I might tell and how I might go about writing it. And that's when I started doing some creative writing courses. And so you've done courses at the Australian Writers' Centre. And did that um, provide you with some techniques 
or was it more inspiration and motivation? What was its contribution to your writing process? Well, the Australian Writing Centre courses I did um, made a great contribution because at first when I was made redundant, I was thinking, oh, I would like to write um, as um, uh, my career to make money. And so I actually started off with a feature writing course uh, because I still didn't have the confidence to write fiction or I didn't know if I could write fiction at that stage. Um, So I did the feature writing course, but I didn't really have this sense that it was what I really wanted to do. And then I kind of explored, you know, sort of what did I want to be when I grew up and all, I went on a personal development journey and I realized I had to get back into the creative writing. And so I did the advanced fiction writing uh, techniques course through the AWC. Mm-hmm. And um, at the same time, I had enrolled in uh, postgraduate university studies in creative writing, but it was at a, such an advanced level where they don't um, teach you the nuts and bolts, I guess, of writing craft. And so I realized I was so far behind, and that's why I actually enrolled in the advanced fiction writing um, techniques course because I had to go back to basics mm. um, to catch up with the rest of my classmates. So I did those um, – the postgraduate studies and the online course concurrently so that I would um, get a more rounded um, sort of um, course. And yeah, and so I I learned a lot of skills in a very short amount of time through that online course, especially the self-editing skills, which I still use to this day. Mm, Great. So just talk me through some timelines, just rough timelines is Mm -hmm. fine. You see this thing in your feed and you think, okay, I've got uh, this has piqued my interest. I've got my setting, Western Australia. I'm going to populate with people um, and you remember this incident in your family history. Mm-hmm. Did this all kind of converge at once or did this happen over a period of time and how did it eventually become a book? <laughs> I'm going to laugh here because everything you described then happened pretty much within minutes, um, not the writing the book part, of course. No. Um, I'll give you uh, – so I'll go back a little bit in the timeline. So uh, this was not actually my first manuscript. My first manuscript that I wrote, um, I started as a university assignment in the first course that I did at um, postgraduate studies level, and I had to write a novel, a first chapter of a novel, and I had no idea, but I just started. And as soon as I put pen to paper, it flowed. And then I finished that first manuscript after five months. Um, And then I started submitting it places, not knowing if I actually had written a book um, Mm. because I had had no feedback um, at all at that point. And so I submitted it to Unpublished Manuscript Awards. And one of them was the Queensland Writers' Centre Hachette Australia Manuscript Development Program, which is a national um, competition. And that was in 2015. And I was selected as one of nine uh, winners of that. And I, um, was, I spent four days at the end of October working with a publisher at Hachette um, to develop that manuscript, as well as talking to a number of other industry professionals. However... I'll backtrack one week from that program in October. Mm-hmm. I thought I'd better start preparing a week beforehand, you know, for the for the four-day program. Mm-hmm. And so my university lecturer at the time was Charlotte Nash-Stewart, who had been a graduate of the Hachette Australia um, Development Program. 
manuscript development program. And so I'd asked her advice. I asked her advice and she said to have a second book to pitch. Mm. And I just thought, oh my goodness, it's only a week away. Mm. I've been spending all of this effort and all this time on this one manuscript. Mm. All my energy was focused on that. And having a second book idea was for me going to be years down the track once I'd got that first manuscript published and then, you know, then I'd leave it up to the publisher. However, I went home after um, Charlotte said that to me and I thought, what can I write about? And then I I think it was the next day. It was the next day that this um, article on the Emu War appeared in my feed. Wow. And, yeah, and then it, all of, you know, I had the setting, then the characters came all at once. Um, and a week later when I turned up to the Hasher Australian Manuscript Development Program, I'd written one chapter mm. of the book and I had a synopsis. And when Rebecca Saunders, the publisher who had chosen to work with me that weekend, mm. asked me, do you have a second book to pitch? <laughs> I was able to say, actually, yes, I do. And I told her and instantly she was all over it. She said, yes, write that. And I said, but what about my first manuscript? <laughs> and she said, oh, no, 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 no. And so I, I knew straight away that she wasn't into that first manuscript, but she was um, into the second book idea. So I put the first one aside. I even considered just binning it oh. and I just – worked like a demon on that second one and I finished the first draft um, within two months. Wow, that's amazing. So when you say that you turned up to that meeting with a synopsis, had you <laughs> plotted out the entire story already <laughs> at the start? No. <laughs> um, I'd written a chapter mm. and I – knew what the climax would be, what the main event would be, and I kind of worked backwards from that, just writing some very loose notes about the – I did have the four characters um, because it's told through four uh, main points of view and how their stories would sort of evolve to get to that point, mm. and that was all I had. And, in fact, the climax that I first came up with – changed completely um, after speaking to Rebecca that weekend. She told me to know it couldn't end up that way. <laughs> right. Wow. Okay, so you had some kind of plan or structure, but mm -hmm. it was a rubbery one. Effectively. Very rubbery. Right. Yes. Okay, so you spend two months then writing mm -hmm. the first draft. Yes. Tell me about those two months. Did you go at it full time? Were you – quite like did you wake up at a certain time and make sure you achieved a certain number of words each day tell us about the the, the structure of those two months okay um we're talking about the end of 2015 and I've written quite a lot since then. So I can't remember exactly what I did, but I imagine I would have written in the evenings and weekends because that is what I do. Um, I have two children and so they take up um, a lot of my time. I would have been working as well as at university at, the, at that time as well. So I would have had other assignments I had to do. But it was November and I do NaNoWriMo. So uh, right. I'm mm -hmm. pretty sure I was using the, the graph on the NaNoWriMo website to oh. track my progress um, and I just continued it into December and I finished um, – I told Rebecca I would finish by Christmas. I had, in fact finished on the 28th of December so <laughs> I was a few days past my de deadline. But I'm sure she yes. didn't mind. <laughs> no, well, she didn't see it at that point either. Yes. Um, 
So what I did then was because I had written so quickly with no planning and no research, mm. it was set in 1932 and I knew nothing at all about 1932. Yeah. I just made it all up. So yeah. I had to then do research. So I did desktop research in January and then in February I went to Dongra, the town in WA, to do the uh, fieldwork research. Had you been there before? I had, yes. I used to live in Geraldton, which is about 40 minutes north of Dongra. Um, I lived there for a few years where I worked as a native title anthropologist. So I did know a lot of the historical issues in terms of um, the Aboriginal people who had to live under the Protection Acts and things like that. But And I'd passed through Dongra uh, yeah. a few times, but I hadn't really stopped there and I didn't know what its particular character or nature was. But I spent a week there talking with the historical society. Mm. A local oral historian had done an oral history project, which was very useful because a number of the people who she'd spoken to have passed on. And so mm. they were um, they had a lot of anecdotes in those transcripts uh, of um, – of the 1930s when they were children. And so I used a lot of those. I lifted lots of little anecdotes and details, um, food and games and and just happenings around the town. And I put them straight into the novel. Um, and okay. also it changed the story because a few of the things that were in the original story I found out could not possibly have happened. Wow. Uh, for example, cars. I, I just assumed <laughs> that everyone would have cars in 1932, but the Historical Society told me that most people were still getting about in buggies and drays. And so <laughs> I had the original story happening at a mechanics garage and that had to change significantly. And I had wow. to find a way of bringing a petrol bowser into town because that <laughs> had to be there for a particular pop, plot point. Mm. Um, I also learned that uh, there wouldn't have been Aboriginal domestic servants, and I had a storyline with that. And so I had to remove, and they were quite in, um, sort of integral to the plot. And I had to remove an entire character, in fact, two whole characters. And I added a family. So there's the Feely family in wow. the story, who were not there until the third draft. Mm. Uh, and so they're now woven through the story and, um, and quite central as well. Um, and so all of these things came out of my one week that I'd spent in Dongra. It actually sounds like quite a lot of changes. Did you oh, yes. anticipate after you had done your that after you had done your research there would be this many changes? <laughs> uh, no, I did not anticipate it. And I have to say, I was speaking to my publisher uh, Rebecca Saunders recently, and she said to me that she. On, on purpose did not tell me how much work needed to happen to the manuscript when she um, offered me a contract because she thought I'd run a mile. And I said, thank gosh, thank wow. gosh. She hadn't told me because I would have. I really would have. I underwent so many structural edits and copy edits. It, it changed so much. And even like in the second copy edit, I was adding characters in scenes that um, weren't there um, wow. before. Yeah, so And that was because the feedback from the editors were that you needed these other characters? Uh yes. I, I think from the editors, from Rebecca, maybe even myself when I'm reading through thinking, Oh, really that person should have a scene themselves, you know, rather than just being spoken about by other characters. Things mm. like that. Right. And so okay. So you 
start doing desk research before you go to Dongora. Yes. At, at, obviously, you knew at some point you're going to have to do research, but when you were in the throes of NaNoWriMo and your mm-hmm. ensuing month afterwards, mm-hmm. was it tempting at any point to to stop and go, oh, I must look that up? Oh, all the time. Um, yes, while I said I, you know, I didn't do any research while I was writing, I would, you know, kind of um, – sort of look at the newspaper articles of the time to see mm. if, you know, what events happened. And so they would just get woven in. I think it's, it was an, it's an iterative process for me. So I would have done a little bit of research. I can't remember exactly how much, but I would have done a little bit each day or each week just to maybe sketch out, um, you know, there's that, um, I think it's, is it in bird by bird about seeing, mm. um, the headlights on the road and just seeing what's in front of you at a, you know, mm. as you're driving along the road. So I think um, I, I kind of knew what I was going to write in each chapter, uh, what was ahead, but then nothing much more beyond that. Yeah, right. And so, okay, you do your – now, did you do your research before you handed in your first draft? Um, well, for me, by then it was like my second or third draft when okay. um, um, Rebecca saw it. Now, I didn't show her the draft. um, I didn't show her the manuscript until May of 2016. What happened at that point to actually make me send it to her was that it had become longlisted in an international um, unpublished manuscript award. Mm. Now, I said I had almost been the first manuscript that I um, that had got me to the manuscript development program, yeah. but I was still sending it out. So I sent it out to the Bath Novel Award um, in early 2016. Mm. And you only have to send the first 5,000 words. And so I thought, well, I've got this other manuscript. It's only going to cost me the entry fee. I mm. thought I would just send it along as well with absolutely no expectations whatsoever. Mm. And in May, um, both manuscripts were long longlisted out of over a thousand entries wow. worldwide. And that freaked me out because I only had a few days then to submit the full manuscript of um, The Secrets at Ocean's Edge, which at that time was called An, an Emu War. Mm. And so I was halfway through ripping out some of the old characters and putting in the new characters Mm. and it was all over the place. It was just a mess, but I submitted it and I thought, well, if, you know, it's been long listed for the Bath Novel Award, maybe I will show it to Rebecca Mm. because Mm. she had been asking, you know, how's (laughs) it going? How's it going? And so I submitted it to her and I think it was a month later. I hadn't heard anything and that was – fine because, I mean, there's a lot of waiting involved when you mm. send things out on submission. So I wasn't expecting to hear from her. And it was a Sunday morning and I just got an email or a text out of the blue asking me what I had in mind for the jacket design. Mm. I was like, oh, I don't know, really. Um, and I kind of came up with a few things. And then there are a few more questions over the week, you know, comparative titles. What did I see, you know? Um, it's genres and what would I compare it to in terms of other novels Mm. and I just I started to get this idea in my head that oh this sounds like she's (laughs) sort of doing something with this manuscript but I didn't want to jump to conclusions but I think it was after a week of these emails I said are you taking this manuscript this forward to acquisitions 
<laughs> and yes, she was. And I just could not believe it because you just don't dare hope, you know, yes. because so much waiting and so much rejection yes. um, involved in this industry. And so, yeah, it was the, a month later, she sent me a text asking me if I was going to the Byron Bay Writers Festival on the weekend. And mm-hmm. I said, yes, I was. And we met up for coffee and it was pouring with rain. This mm-hmm. was in 2016 in August. Yeah. And, um, and it, and there were, you know, we were in the catering tent, there were hundreds of people around us and she just said she'd like to make me an offer. And that was that. And so how did you feel? Um, well, I couldn't feel, um, too much with people pressed in around me. <laughs> um, so I, I, I just felt, I, well, I, I honestly, it's hard to describe how it feels to actually have all your dreams come true when you, you just, yeah, it still feels like it's happening separately to me. I mean, the book's done really well and people are always, you know, saying congratulations, but my life, you know, still continues. I still have to raise my children and send them off <laughs> to school with lunch each morning and yes. life just goes on. Wow. Okay. So you, you've, you, you've made the offer, you've sent in your draft, you then go through uh, a series of structural edits. When you got that feedback, when you get feedback from the publisher, from the edit, whoever's editing it, and you know, okay, I've got to add this character or change this or whatever, do you – tell me about that process. Do you um, start from scratch in a sense but obviously you already know what you know you, you the bulk of it is done but you but because you have to weave things in you have to yes. rewrite things or do you just fix bits where they oh. are required um i am i think in later edits like the copy edits which for me were like mini structural edits i did just fix bits but with the first structural report i was given i had to go back to the drawing board because i didn't have um i, I guess specific things I had to fix. I had to actually work mm. out what the genre of the story was, was the main question that the structural report asked me. Mm. So, I mean, we're talking very big, sort of big high level structural questions here. Mm. So I had to pull it all apart pretty wow. much. I had to work out what I wanted to say with the story, what it was about for me, um, who to keep, um, what main plot points to keep, put them in a different order. Um, I really, I, I pulled it apart, and this is actually where the um, the editing uh, techniques I learned from the AWC course came in handy because there was a grid that I remembered that we were taught, and I pulled that out, and I used that grid, and I, I made like a scene map of the whole story where I could actually, it was on Excel. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not an Excel spreadsheet person whatsoever, but at that stage where I had to really work out the building blocks of the story and what was relevant and what wasn't, it was very useful. Um, and so that was a long process and it was also um, uh, quite demoralizing at first when you kind of think, gosh, you know, can I do this? It's like writing a whole new book uh, all over again from scratch. Um, and I did write a pros and cons list one night there might have been a few wines involved and I, I came up with the decision to uh, to hand back the advance because I would not be able to write no. this book the way that they wanted it. Are you serious? And I'm serious. I'm serious, yes. But the next oh. morning I woke up and I had 
an idea of how to take, you know, story in the direction that they were kind of insinuating and, and, you know, it kind of, yeah, everything worked, you know, in the end, but, oh gosh, it you was. You were seriously going to yes. hand back the advance and say, I yes. can't do this. Well, I mean, I I had to write a pros and cons list for yeah. it, um, and like I said, there might have been a few wines involved, but um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, I just I'd hit a brick wall. I really had hit a brick wall. I did not think I could make it work. I just didn't, and I you know when wow. I slept on it, and the answer was there, you know, the next day. Yes, well, thank God for that. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. So it has been so incredibly well received. When you saw it, when you held it in your hand, what did you think? Oh, the first time I saw the book, I was actually on my way to um, a bookseller's dinner. This was in August last year. Mm. Um, so Hachette organizes dinners where authors can meet the booksellers and talk about their book a bit to promote it um, so they, it can be um, sold into the bookshops. Yeah. And I had to pass – because my – mailbox is about a kilometer from my house. I had to drive past the mailbox on my way to the dinner. And there at the mailbox was a box of my advanced reading copies. Oh, yeah. So all I had time for was to put the box in the car on my way out. And then at the train station, I opened it up because I thought, oh, mm-hmm. I better look at it before I go to the, the dinner. Yes. I, I just um, cut it open, pulled out the advanced reading copy and, and I went in, um, up to the platform. And so I looked at it for the first time on, at the train station. Wow. And I, um, you know, I kind of didn't have time to absorb the import of it. You know, I was just, <laughs> I, I had to go and, and, you know, be on show and, you know, talk, talk, talk it up. And so I had the book with me um, and it was like, the whole night was exciting. So it kind of went from like when I look at a graph of this whole experience, it's just a lot of plateau, plateau, plateau where there's nothing happening whatsoever. And there's vertical spikes, you know, of mm. excitement. And so when things are just overwhelming like that, it's hard to know, you know, how am I thinking, how am I feeling at this particular moment? Because it's just all happening at once. Mm. So this book is out now. What are you working on now? Okay. Well, the night that I was given the offer of a contract at Byron Bay back in 2016, mm. I started working on my next book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I'd learnt my lesson from the first one, always having a next book to pitch. So I uh, came up with an idea uh, set in Brisbane. It's Now, the first book is um, told through four points of view. This one is only told through one character's point of view, but over three different time frames. And the reason why I decided to set it in Brisbane is because I've lived here now for 10 years and I still feel very West Australian. And I think a large part of that is because I had written this novel set in WA, which really connected me strongly to the place and the landscape, the people. And so I knew that I had to put down roots here in Brisbane. So I had to set the, the story here. And um, and I think it was, again, when I'm thinking of story ideas, little anecdotes from the past just pop into my head. I was at um, my neighbor's house a few years ago uh, for New Year's Eve, and she lives with her um, elderly mother, and her mother just started telling a story about being abandoned by her mother in Fortitude Valley here in Brisbane when she was a child. Her mother just walked off and she never saw her again. Oh my and God. so it was so um, she was brought up by her grandfather with her brother and that was that. And I think 
you know, there was, I, that was all I took. That's all I remembered um, when I thought, oh, let's set a story in Brisbane. And that was it. I just started with that anecdote that popped into my head and the rest of the story just flowed out of that. Wow. You just take action, don't you? <laughs> so, um, you lots of notebooks of um, five story ideas. Uh, you know, yes. I talk about a book one, book two, book three, um, and they're all different colors on my desk. And when I get an idea that belongs in, in one of those stories, I just have to write it in the notebook because I know I'm not going to get to it, you know, yeah. until like 2021 or something like that. And I don't want to lose the idea. So I just keep all my notes together. Um, and I have to say to any other story ideas or characters that come along, you know, stop, hold on, yeah. I can't write that fast. So, yeah, right, wow. Okay, so have you written this book? I, I mean, this have manuscript. The, the next one, uh, mm. yes, uh, I have written it. I'm rewriting it at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I'm not as naive anymore about how many times a book has to be rewritten. Mm. So, I'm okay with that. I've torn it to pieces um, myself. I haven't had a structural report from the publisher yet, um, and but I know kind of now how they think. Is it and historical so, fiction? Yes. Well, the timeframes are 1948, 1958 to 63, and then there's a contemporary storyline set in 2011. Um, so and I actually, Have you learned any lessons about the research process? Like, did you maybe do some beforehand this time around so that you didn't have to rewrite entire chunks or... How did you approach that in the benef- with the benefit of hindsight? Okay. Well, what I did was I wrote the 2011 storyline first mm-hmm. because I had the idea in my head. I just wanted to get it down on paper. Yeah. And because the 2011 one, I was living here in Brisbane. I didn't have to do any um, research on the setting um, because I experienced the floods here in Brisbane myself. And so, and, you know, that's an event in the in the story. So I was able to write that from my own experience, and I wrote I wrote it like a novella. So it was like a thirty thousand word novella, that contemporary mm. storyline. Um, but I knew kind of what I wanted to happen in the past, um, without actually knowing the the specific events that would lead to that result or consequence. Um, and so I wrote that first, and then I started my research on those previous time periods. Right. What do you consider your occupation these days? Writer, definitely writer. Do you are you a full time writer? Um, I am, but not just fiction. I um, have done other types of writing, like grants writing, Mm -hmm. um, and I'm also a full time student of creative writing. I'm doing my masters at the University of Queensland, Mm -hmm. so there's a critical essay component to that as well as the creative work. Mm. So are you now fitting in your writing, let's say with this manuscript or whatever story ideas you decide to write about, um, are you fitting it in like the previous one at night and weekends or is this like what you do during the day these days? Well, it does depend at what's, you know, what time of year, what stage of um, each particular um, like essay or um, novel that I'm writing is at. But because I have to be at university full time, I'm here every day. Um, and so I'll either be working on the novel that I'm writing for that or I'll be working on the critical essay. Um, mm. So there might be a lot of theoretical reading and writing that I'm doing, which isn't as exciting for me as fiction. <laughs> um, and if I'm doing grants writing, you know, that'll be um, during the day. Um, but so I do still spend every evening working on my uh, my books that hopefully will get published by Hachette. 
Mm. So after you stopped working for the government and you mm-hmm. thought, you know, I'm going to try out writing, mm-hmm. at that point did you think that this would happen? <laughs> no, of course not. I mean, I hadn't written any fiction at all for 22 years. Yeah. I had no idea, but it was just a little persistent voice in my head that, you know, I've got to finish what I'd started. I'd done first year university at Curtin in Perth with Elizabeth Jolly as my lecturer. Mm. And, um, and I, you know, I dropped out and I just thought I've got to see it through to see if there is anything there. And even if I didn't get published, I think I'd still be writing now. You know, mm. I'd probably still be hoping to be published, but I do love writing. Sure. I love it. What a great story. Thank you so much for your time today, Carly. Thanks, Valerie. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1, is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You only need a couple of hours a week and you'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course. Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. All right, there you go, Carly Napier. Awesome. So what's happening with you in the coming week, Al, before we chat again? Um, well, clearly I'll be ignoring that shouting voice and yeah. you know, actually getting on with the thing I need to be getting on with, which will be good. Um, and, oh, so I'm also, I'm roadieing this weekend because of course, oh, uh, yes. Book Boy has a gig at the Sea Change Festival in Huskisson oh, this weekend. Yes. It's very exciting. He's actually, how cool is this? He's playing in a pop-up theater which is 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 like a little um circus tent uh it's called the pocket oh. yeah it's really cool and it like like it's a little tiny sort of like little tent and that's got all seating in it it's really cute so he's playing yes. in that he's got a gig there and um we'll be all be out there um watching him and cheering him on um so there yeah that's pretty much me <laughs> fantastic and so um it's like spiegel tent a little bit, well, kind of like a tiny little mini version little of that. Spiegel, yeah. Not as vel- not as velvety, I don't think, as that. But yeah, like yes. it's it's, um, it's very cool, and uh, he's very chuffed, of course, to have landed himself such a gig. So you know, everyone's happy. Off we go. Yes. Well, I have a different few days planned because the in-laws are coming, so they're going to be visiting, oh. and um, uh, <laughs> so you know, uh, my house will be full, and I'll be doing entertaining things and are you going to be cooking will there be cooking in welfare i don't know whether that is a good idea Um, (laughs) (laughs) i'm aware of my own limitations you could make a couple (laughs) little hors d'oeuvres or something you could you know whip out did you watch have you been watching the annabelle crab um I can't remember what it's called. In time for dinner or something. It's on the ABC on um, oh, I have not. Tuesday nights. Should I watch it? 
Well, yeah, I watched last night and last night they were in the 60s. But how is this? They redecorate this house every week and put a whole new kitchen in and a whole new, like, and make it look like it did in the era. It's quite amazing. It's oh. one house, one family. And then they change the whole internal, you know, workings of the house for that wow. for that week. And they can only cook food from that era and, you know, they can only do the things that they would do in that era. And, of course, last night was the 60s, which was kind of weird instant mashed potato and a whole bunch of other things. Um, but the hors d'oeuvres were what got me because do you remember pigs in blankets where they used to wrap oh, yes. bacon around a prune? Yes. Prune, yeah. yeah, I love that. So love good. That. And I'd forgotten yes, good. how good they were until I yeah. saw them there last night. And they're super easy. You could maybe make some of those. I could. I could. Pigs in blanket. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. You know, and once- cocktails. They went out and had a glamorous dinner and had prawn Oh, yes. With some, oh, oh that that pinky lovely. sauce, whatever that's called. Yeah, the seafood sauce and the yeah, um, and sauce. the iceberg lettuce in the bottom. You know. Yes, <laughs> I like iceberg lettuce. You could do the full sixties um, dinner party. I could. I could have cabernossi and cheese. Yeah, you and know, jats, um, tasty cheese. Yeah, jats. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sarah from our office confessed yesterday that when she was little, she asked her she asked her parents for a jat. Because she just wanted one. Just wanted the one. That's so cute. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. See, we would have eaten those in our Holden Kingswood station wagon with the orange curtains on our way to North Queensland. (laughs) Yes. It's all all coming together. Once with a group of people, I did have a a meal and we all had to cook dishes that you could have only cooked in ancient Rome. Oh, what I know. Make? Well, there were a lot of Rapes? apricots <laughs> and dates. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe they were figs or something. I don't know. But yeah, that was a bizarre experience. But, but yeah, what did you make? What did you make? And I think oh, how could you not? No, it must have been with the apricots. I apricots think you just stew them. Like you just, you know, put them on a stove and cook some apricots. (laughs) I think the funny thing about it too, though, is a lot of the stuff that they were showing there last night is the 60s. Like obviously I wasn't actually born in the 60s. So I have memories of all of it from the 70s. So there was obviously like a a rollover into the following decade. And, of course, if you were in the Northern Territory at the time, I'm pretty sure we were stuck in the 70s for quite some time. I remember my dad, you know, going to work and wearing, you know, long socks pulled up to his knees and shorts and then the, and then the little short sleeve button, button up shirt and stuff. Like, and you look at it now and you just go, wow. Totally. (laughs) I remember my teachers wearing that. I think that some some of them still do. Yeah, some of them still do. (laughs) All right. Anyway, where do we find you online now? Uh, you'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You will find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we you, find you? You will find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. And, of course, make sure you connect with both Alison and I in the podcast community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. It'd be great to have you in there. It's such an awesome group of people. And, uh, you know, we chat about all things writing and also sometimes banoffee pie, which I had last night. Are you serious? Very exciting. Yes. Anyway, 
bit excited. You squeaked then. I just want you to know you squeaked when you did that. Somebody asked me if I was as passionate about apple Danish as you are about banoffee pie, and I'm like, oh, yeah. there's no, like, there's no possible way that I could be. That's right. That's right. <laughs> anyway, I had it last night, so very happy, and I've got some leftovers today, so double happy. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.